How's it going, everybody? Welcome to my show, The GMS Podcast. I am your host, Jorge M. Sanchez. Thank you for tuning in. I'll have a seat. There's plenty of seats here. Make yourself comfortable. There you go. All right, you feeling good? Can I get you anything? You want a water? Anything to drink? A beverage? Oh, uh, you want beer? I got some of that too. Okay. Well, tell you what. Later on the show, I'll bring it up to you. All right. Uh, I want to thank everybody. It's been a, a crazy week. It's been a pretty bad week, actually. Uh, I'll, I'll get into it in a little bit because I just want to remind everybody that if this is your first time listening, you can su- subscribe. I'm in trouble with that word. Subscribe to the GMS podcast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, SoundCloud, on most Android podcast apps. You can uh, stream all of these episodes and you can also download these episodes. So there you go. You can take it wherever you want. Be like, man, I'm in the middle of the Arctic Circle. I got no service here, but I'm happy that I downloaded the GMS podcast episodes before I made the trip. That's what I'm talking about. You can also follow the GMS Podcast on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can donate on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash Podcast. You can check out the website, jmspodcast.com, for all the available content. And you can email me at jmspodcast at gmail.com for any reason at all. Maybe you just want to say hello. I'll say hello back. We have a great episode. Today's main uh, guest is a comedian by the name of Alyssa Westerland. She's an awesome person. I'll tell you more about her later. Uh, because we also got to do, a uh, for the very first time, a the official pilot's episode of Vinyl Tap. Where we're going to be uh, reviewing some vinyl albums. And this is something that I've been trying to work on for years. And this is it. This is the episode. I hope you guys dig it. And I think uh, look, you should look forward to it because uh, hopefully it would broaden your horizons when it comes to music, when it comes to vinyl. And we have a, an amazing uh, correspondent for that. But I need to remind everybody once more that if you love comedy, of course you do. You love stand-up comedy even better. We'll tell you what, come on down to Frascati Comedy Night on Wednesday nights. Uh, I've been building this thing for years, and we are at a top level. We've got some great local talent. On top of that, we got some great talent stopping by from all over the country. And we got some pretty uh, pretty big veterans in the game stopping by. So please stop on by at Cafe Frascati in downtown San Jose Wednesday nights from 8 to 10 p.m. And I think you're going to have a great time with it. Bring your friends. I will be there. Some of the comedians that have been on this podcast will be there. So there you have it. Cafe for Scotty, comedy nights, Wednesday nights, in downtown San Jose, Cafe for Scotty. Boom, just got to plug that in there right now. I, uh, I'm i a little late on this episode. It took me a while to edit it, put together. I had a private comedy show last night in San Leandro with me and my buddy Faco. We, we got, it was a little awkward because we never, I never really done a private party. It was at somebody, it was somebody's birthday party in their house. And it was a f- lot of fun. It was in San Leandro. And it was a lot of fun. We had a good time. You know, at first it was awkward, right? Because we obviously didn't fit in. It was an all-black family. And we were like, who's this guy? And we're like, oh, we're the uh, entertainment of the night. You know, and some woman um, got nervous. Like, oh, these are the exotic dancers because we do not look like exotic dancers. They're like, oh, no, they're comedians. They're like, oh, really? Okay. And they're like, uh, and so we were a little nervous about, you know, bringing the fire, making sure everybody had a good time. And I think we accomplished that. It was a lot of fun. So I, I uh, it was a first for me and a first for Faco in some ways, and we walked out of it feeling pretty good. 
All right. Anything else I need to? Oh, okay. So this is the final. It's not the final episode. What I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is that tomorrow I'm having my surgery. So hopefully next Sunday we should have an episode uh, in the can. I'm recording it later on today. I have a guest coming in. And uh, I'm a little nervous. God, more than ever. Jesus, they're going to come me open. They're going to take out my gallbladder. But then uh, I just found out how complicated this whole fucking medical health uh, industry is uh, in some ways. Um, straight off the bat, they want to take 600 from me like on the spot for the surgery. I'm like, whoa, come on. like Give me a couple weeks to like raise up the money. Just like, Who carries around 600 bucks? On them, that's ridiculous. And, he's, and the nurse looked at me like, like, yeah, this is the, the you didn't know this is how it works. You give me hundreds of dollars, and we we save your life. Oh, okay. And and then um, man, that that shit was depressing. I just got an idea of the medical bill bills. This, all this is gonna cost, and it's gonna set me back for a while, financially. But you know what can you do, right? You can't say no to. You eventually you gotta give in to the debt, and you gotta you know just take care of it. But other than that, you know, just uh, just trying to stay positive, right? Just trying to stay positive, positive, and um, and I'll if, if it all goes well, you you'll hear from me pretty soon. And if it doesn't, well, it's uh, <laughs> which I'm sure it's not, right? What's the worst that could happen? Knock on wood, right? Famous last words. All right. So how about this? Let's move on to our first segment. All right. This segment, Vinyl Tap, with Esther Young. Uh, like I said before, I've wanted to do this for the longest time, but you know, I, 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 I had to be careful with this, right? Because so many things can go wrong, especially when dealing with music and copyright. And, and on top of that, we I want to provide the best informative entertainment segment as well. So I think uh, this is it. This is the I found the perfect person in Esther Young. She's a brilliant musician, a brilliant uh, person. She's she's. An amazing person. I can't say much more than that. And I found her very suitable for for this segment. She is not just knowledgeable, but she's eager to learn more. And I was like, yes. So so here we did uh, we did the Janis Joplin Pearl album. It is her last album. And we figured that's a good place to start because that's what the what I want you know in some ways to be a music review segment about. Where it's not not just you know just any music that's coming out, but how about how about culturally significant music from the past, and in some ways how that reflects till now. So I'm very excited to to move forward with this one. Uh, so without much further ado, here is the very first vinyl tap with Esther Young. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the very first Vinyl Tap segment where we are going to review some vinyl albums with the one and only Esther Young. Esther, say hello to the listeners. Hello, everyone. Before you start, Esther, uh, can you let the listeners know who you are and kind of your background in music and kind of where do you hope to take this segment? Yeah, um, so my name is Esther and my main draw to the world of music is songwriting. So I'm kind of living in the space between writing and composing melodies um, I was a music major in college just for a couple years though and what I hope to do with this segment is honestly just 
talk about the music that makes an impact on us that carries over in our culture and fig- talk talk about why we still care so much about people who are mostly not really alive <laughs> anymore. <laughs> well, and, and the whole vinyl aspect about it, like, kind of, kind of talk yes. about like, does that interest you at all coming in with that? Recordings that are physical, yeah, not streaming. That's right. That's <laughs> and Jorge's right. generosity. What does that mean? <laughs> it means he gifted me a record player, y'all. <laughs> oh, no, it was great. That's great. Uh, so I, I'm excited for this. I really want to do this for the longest time, you know, but I had to put this in the back burner. So in some ways, this is going to be the very last segment, you know, in the, in the uh, you know, the what's the word I'm looking for where the, you know what I'm saying there's I gonna have only so much and this is the fifth one I think or the sixth one actually hmm. it's in the last one and the one I always really wanted because I love music and I love talking about music I love talking about vinyl music especially yeah and I know Vester you you not only is your last name young but you're very young and you you're so knowledgeable <laughs> and you're so smart and a great musician and I know you're the right person for this so welcome <laughs> to the GMS podcast team Thank you. Everything sounds so opposite, but yes, thank uh, you. <laughs> she's very humble, very modest. <laughs> All right, Esther, this was our pilot episode. our very first segment episode. Uh, what what album are we going to be talking about today? Today we're going to be talking about Janis Joplin's last album, Pearl. Yeah, I, I really dig his album. It's one of my favorites, some of my favorite songs. It is her second solo album right mm-hmm. but it's her last one because last one. towards the tail end of making this album she passed away that is right yeah so where do we start with this album well probably just what you just said is how we know it's her very last album we know it's her last album because there's one track where it's just instrumental not because it was meant to be but because she passed away the day before she was supposed to record mm-hmm. and then there's the other track where it's just her vocals because she had recorded her vocals the band not yet but they left it as it was because that was the last they had of her mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the album came out in 1971 i'm sorry these headphones are killing me <laughs> let me fix there we, there we go uh, the, it came out in, in 1971 that's right and uh and yeah i i think uh unfortunately it's her last album but i think there's some really great songs in here Absolutely. But let's talk about the aesthetic of the actual vinyl cover. Like, what was your impressions of yeah. how they can you describe to, to the listeners of how this uh, vinyl record looks like? Okay. So, if you're a color person, first you notice the deep, rich, and, okay, velvet is not a color, but in my head it's deep, rich, velvety colors. And if you're more of like an illustration person, you might first notice the woman on the figure, Janis Joplin herself, of course, and she's got feathers draped over her head, you know, a hippie, the whole look. She's on a couch, and she's just kind of smiling at you. Well, that's the thing. They they resort to having a photograph as the album cover, Mm -hmm. and it's a photograph of her lounging on a chair, Mm -hmm. smiling. Mm -hmm. I think that's the perfect image they want to leave people because again like she passed away so like what is the best you know image we can put on this record that best exemplifies who Janis Joplin is as a person and and having her at her most comfortable level smiling I think that really you know it really displays who she was as a person Mm -hmm. you kind of get that yeah it's interesting that she she looks she's still though you know they don't have her in motion she's sitting over a couch or a chair or whatever and i think that's interesting because um some people could like look back on janice and be like oh she was a rebel she was crazy she didn't care but then there are those who were like well like listen to her singing like you can hear a lot of vulnerability in her voice like that cackle seems impenetrable but 
there was a lot to her, you know, both sides. So I think it's interesting that this is not a motion picture of sorts. Now, it is Janis Joplin. It's rock and roll, uh, rhythm and blues. Mm-hmm. Usually, is that kind of the genre you listen to? How was it? You, uh, how did you navigate through this uh, genre with this album? Well, um, well, my first impression listening to the album was this is not going to be melody-driven music because coming in, I knew that her voice she was more she was a performer she wasn't like a smooth vocalist even though she could definitely imitate you know certain female vocalists of the time she was known for her screaming her screeching um she would you know screech and people would be like oh my gosh janice you're gonna kill your vocals and she was like well i just want to live and give everything i have now like why preserve my voice for another 70 years and live like a boring life anyway um so I think coming in, I was like, there's going to be lots of noise, and I'm going to listen to this a couple times over because mm-hmm. personally, I tend to look for melody. As I mentioned, I'm a songwriter. So I was like, I'm going to like let this grow on me. And it has. Yeah. Um, the way my first impression of Janis Joplin, like when I was in high school and I just saw pictures of her first, I was like, okay, like she's a hippie woman. Her hair is frizzy. She wears loose, like long sleeves, you know, long sleeves. Um, beaded necklaces like that's all i really thought of was the aesthetic mm-hmm. well it's funny how, how you mentioned that she was very much a performer and kind of how she she really put it all out there on on stage and in her performance mm-hmm. uh which are the attributes in the blues music and rhythm blues that's what it's always about it was never really about technique it was never really about um the idea of of being uh musically formal mm-hmm. it was mm-hmm. really about expressing yourself right you know, and this, and this is why it's my favorite genre of music, because I've gone through so many concerts, whether it's hip-hop, whether it's, you know, singer-songwriters, or it's a variety. Mm-hmm. A- and the only concerts I go to that I cry, I physically cry, are the ones that are blues music or rhythm and blues, this kind of genre. Mm-hmm. Because you, when you're watching the performer just sing it out, not perfect, of course, but yet you feel the emotions. You, you, there, there's a point where you're like, you just feel it and you begin crying. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a part of of, of Janis Joplin that I think uh, that really set her apart in her generation of of rock and roll mm-hmm. in some ways. Yeah, like she would go on stage and give everything. She mm-hmm. didn't sing in a way that was to preserve her voice. Like that, it wasn't her thing to to go up there and like be in control. It was more like she was in control, you know, of the room, but she wasn't. She was, it was like a spirit was in her and she was just going to let it out, you know, yeah. what, even if it tore her apart a little bit, yeah, which I'm yeah. sure it did on her vocals. Yeah. Well, it, you know, but, you know, by this time, it was her, her voice was definitely a little more gravelly mm-hmm. and, and stuff. But I think those are certain details that adds to her music. Absolutely. You know, some of these tracks, she kind of comes off as very motherly, mm-hmm. you know, especially the last track uh, of Get It While You Can. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of, it's kind of perspective of, of her kind of telling of a younger woman of like, Get it while you can, you know, uh, hmm. and, and, and her having that very mature voice by that time. It's like it really added uh, another level to that song. Yeah. So talk about songs. Any songs that you want to highlight here? Yes. Um, for me, the one that my ears latched onto almost immediately was A Woman Left Lonely because it is, you know, slower and it's 
clearly about a woman left lonely. Mm -hmm. And I think that with her singing it, you definitely get the vulnerable side of Janice. And in this record, I think there's more space. You know, the drums are kind of just keeping a steady beat. Um, the organ, the piano, just, you know, giving her more room. And there's just more room to kind of like feel it. And I guess it changes depending like how we feel as we're listening, what stage of life we're in, whatever. But I was like, oh, shoot, like this oh, song no. is real. <laughs> Is that because you feel like you're uh, a woman left lonely? Not right now, but no. I can remember the time. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Me too. I was a woman left lonely. Yeah. There's a woman left I've lonely been there. in all of us. <laughs> <laughs> well, one that I, I love and um, is definitely Mercedes Benz. Mm. This is her, again, you know, she passed away before they could finish the song. So the only thing that, she, that she, they had was her vocals. Mm-hmm. And that's the what, and it was so brave for the producers. I, I, uh, I it was produced by Paul A. Rothschild, mm-hmm. and it was very brave of him to leave this track on here, which is her singing Mercedes Benz, which is kind of a song of her wishing she had a good-looking car. You know, she's praying to God to give her a Mercedes Benz because all her friends are driving Porsches. Yeah, and, <laughs> and, and, you, and the fact that there was no instrumental, it was just her vocals, just made it that much more of like like sincere yeah. about it and, and something you can relate to of like oh my god I feel like I'm left behind please <laughs> god help me out and, yeah. and it kind of goes with the uh, with the um, with the idea I mean it is very materialistic in some way but I think it goes beyond that it goes beyond of, of, of a sense of despair mm-hmm. and it's just it's one of those songs where like there's again it's like how, how can this be a great song if there's no music behind it I'm like well that's the thing with her singing is she didn't even need music if in some ways she was that great of, of I, I mean again we discussed the difference between a vocalist and a performer but she really was a blend of both absolutely and what's interesting is how they keep kind of her little her, she says something before she starts singing like here's a social political yeah and then at the very end she cackles um, because she's laughing kind of like at the beginning and the ending of the song I'm wondering if she sings it as like a sort of like satirical like materialistic you know because yeah i'm sure it was because she was a hippie in some sense the material stuff wasn't her thing Mm -hmm. but again like the song was it's not at at surface level it's like oh it's about a woman singing about hoping to get a car but it's much more than that (laughs) yeah you know the mercedes benz could be replaced with anything you Mm -hmm. know help me out with god with getting this or achieving Mm this Mm -hmm. any other songs that popped to, to your mind um yeah well, I have I have some thoughts for each of them, but when I heard uh, me and Bobby McGee, I was like, wow, I can totally hear how this was like the one that hit number one. Yeah, this was a big hit. For a little bit. Big hit. Yeah, it's it's catchy, um, and I also felt like in this recording, her vocals are a little more upfront as well, which makes for radio music. I think. Um, and I was reading that when they, when she was singing, when she was first offered the song, like the writers weren't sure if it would go well with her vocals mm-hmm. so it was kind of a surprise and they were like hey like she's rocking it you know it's one of those songs that you expect from Linda Ronstadt in some way 
Mm. I don't mean that from a pejorative way. It, mm. it kind of had that that country sound to it as well. Yeah. And, and so to, for that to come out of her, in some ways it made sense. It didn't make sense. It, it didn't make sense because she was much more of the counterculture movement. Mm-hmm. You know, not exactly countryish. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it totally made sense because she is a southern gal. You know, she is from yeah. Texas and yeah. she grew up with that kind of music. That is true. Yeah. Also, fun little fact about the song. Um, Bobby McGee was originally Barbara Bobby McKee, woman. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of cool because Janice wasn't straight. Like, she had relations with men uh, and women. She was definitely so. polyamorous. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. With, with, uh, with both genders, for sure. Yeah. So her singing it, very, very right. Yeah. Dig it, I dig it, I dig it. Uh, mm-hmm. But the opening song, "Move Over," like that's the the titular song they put in the soundtrack, like in the album, mm-hmm. uh, and it kind of sets the tone for the rest of the album, right? Yeah. Do you agree with that? Power, yeah. The pop organ stood out to me for that one. What's that? The pop organ, the organ. Oh just, yeah. yeah, yeah. Just that, like always, like taking up the higher range of the of the space of the whole recording. Mm. Now, a couple interesting things about this uh, vinyl album, or this album in general. So, Janis Joplin is mostly known with her work with the um, her band that she's mostly known for, which is Big Brother and The Holding Company. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for this last album, she actually worked with the Full Tilt Boogie Band. Yeah. And, that, and they did a good job, you know, considering that a lot of her famous songs were with the Big Brother and The Holding Company, it's hard to almost, you know, separate those separate her from the band right yeah some would even argue some would even argue that the band big brother and the holding company is what really made janice joplin you know get big some Mm -hmm. would argue Mm -hmm. uh but i think with her coming in with a different band with different musicians really proves to everyone that she could hold her own yeah in in some ways so i i think that's why this this um this record was such a big deal for her Mm -hmm. when putting it together yeah must have been rough though because big brother was like her family yeah and like finally her career and her family can like coexist and so i think when she was when she agreed to work with this other this touring band Mm -hmm. i don't know i'm sure there was a lot of like unresolved tension that she was dealing with at the same time yeah yeah all right uh overall how do you feel with the album do you recommend it to people to check out yes Yes. For someone like me, I would say, like, listen to it a couple times. Let the songs grow on you. Let them sound different and take up different colors in your head as you listen. Um, yeah, and, like, look for your favorites. All right. Uh, closing statements. How, how do you feel about the album overall? And, and uh, what's your, uh, yeah, overall closing statement? Overall, would listen to any time of the day. Would listen if I'm feeling good about myself and feeling bad about myself. Because either way, you have to laugh at yourself a little. And Janis Joplin is a great artist to listen to when you want to be reminded of that. <laughs> awesome. Esther, thank you so much. Yeah? Yeah? Yeah. You're so shy. <laughs> so cute. <laughs> you can't see me right now. My shoulders are, like, hunched up, and that's not even on purpose. It's just the pose I found myself in. Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry. I'm sure a couple of reviews in, you'll be telling me what, 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 to, what to talk about. Jorge, I'm the captain now. This is my podcast. <laughs> my <Yeah>. ship. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Esther, thank you for coming. Thank you for having me.
Once again, that is the Pearl album from Janis Joplin, available now on, at your local record store. They, sh they should have it. It's a pretty well-known album. And I hope you found this uh, review informative and interested in the music. And I I'm telling you, you should really check it out. Great fucking music. You can email me at jmspodcast at gmail.com and let me know what you think about Janis Joplin's album or in general about her music. And let me know about this segment. How did you feel about this review? Did you find it informative? Please let me know once again at jmspodcast at gmail.com. Always room for improvement and always looking forward to hear from you. All right, let's move on to our main guest. Today's guest is the comedian Alyssa Westerlund. I met her during stand-up. She stopped by for Scotty. And uh, I'm pretty sure I've seen her somewhere else in in the in San Francisco, most likely. And it was a pleasure having her here. It was a great talk. She is a fascinating person and a real force of nature and a lot of great insights. So let's get right down to it. Here is the one and only Alyssa Westerlin. Actually, I'm a little surprised that you had no traffic on the way over here. Well, Every time I hit 880 yeah. and I, I hit up there to Oakland or Berkeley, there's always some kind of traffic. I feel like it's, a, yeah, I think it, on the way there, I don't know. It was like five minutes outside of Oakland where we were kind of like stuck. Uh huh. But then after that, yeah, easy. Cool. Easy peasy. Mm-hmm. Westerlund, right? Westerlund, yeah. Is, is that, is that a, a... Swedish. Swedish, really? Swedish, yeah. Do you, do you know what part of Sweden? Uh, well, there's shit tons of them everywhere, so no, not sure. Uh, West, it's pretty <laughs> All over it's, Sweden? It's a pretty common name in Sweden, yeah. Um, really? Yeah, it's not, not it's, common. It's so funny. I, for some reason, I know a lot of Swedes. Well, well yeah, I'm, can, I'm they're, Canadian, they're, technically. Um, Canadian, okay. But, yeah, Swedish-ish. Oh, sorry, I'm putting this on there in play mode, just in case. Um, God, how you been? Uh, you been all right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, life is, you know, whatever it is, it's kind of moving, always going yeah. forward, I feel. Yeah. Are, are you also taking notes on, on I this? always write things out. Like, I That's always have a pen. I, it's kind of a neurotic thing, but I just really like pens, like paper. Right. Yeah. Well, and I'm going to try to pretend to come up with a set list while we're talking. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Make a bit about this? Not about this. I was like, oh, I'm going to podcast, this random guy. Nothing happened yet. Yeah, yeah. I'm at some dude's house. Some I, dude's I'm house. Right that, at, right, at a yeah. dude's house. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> at some dude's house. You know, I thought he was Mexican, but it looks more Indian. Makes sense. He's <laughs> in Silicon Valley. I don't know. Whatever. Yeah. I usually don't. I mean, like, when I'm writing things down, people think that I'm talking, like, I'm writing about them or what's happening, and it's usually something completely unrelated. I feel, I feel like when you're, like, writing your diary, you know, in real time. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Just narrating the way. Yeah. It's right. like, no, it's completely just a random association that came right. to mind, and I'm writing it down. But, yeah, my non-comic friends are always like, are you writing about me? Is that about me? What did you write? What did you? I'm like, dude, this literally has nothing to do with you. Read it. It's like, so interesting how people... People outside of comedy are very um, sensitive about them being in your act. Right. Oh, yeah. Well, they, they. I think a lot of them, like, I would say half of them really want to be in your act. Oh, they do. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, I mean. At least but, but they want to control how they, they're, you know. How they're perceived. Either they're the punchline or something, right? Right. Right. Yeah. Like, my mom, I mean, she really, it's flattering to her. But then if, when she, hear, she's like, she hates the joke about how she gave me mushrooms when I was a kid. And uh, it's all true. But she, yeah. she says it's a lie. I'm like, well, you can say whatever you, well, you want, mom. Like, I don't. It, it's my joke and a right. lot of them are lies and then you know mainly it's uh, people I date who will want to uh, 
find out what I'm going to say. And, uh, oh, it's the worst, isn't it? Yeah. It's, when, when the significant other. Yeah. Well, and usually because they're censor in some way. Well, I usually get rid of them after about three months. Like I, I, they're not really, they don't last long. So I'm like, honey, yeah. if you're lucky in three months, you'll be a joke. But like, most likely you're not that interesting. Like, and the more you, you keep pressing me, right, the right. less I'm going to write anything. We really had something if, if you were in my bit. You know? Yeah. 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 And, yeah. and if you're not, uh, yeah. It's not working out. Uh, you know, I don't know. It's like, well, I don't know if that actually has anything to do with it. But usually, yeah, I'm not going to write a joke about the person until I know I'm not going to see them again. Because I just don't, you know, I don't want them to think, oh, that's about, you know, at, at a certain point, it doesn't fucking matter who's it about. Like, nobody's right. going to know. The only thing that matters if it gets a laugh for yeah, us, yeah. at least. It doesn't. And, and, oh, oh, it's about you. No one on the planet is going to know that that joke about the guy who, you know, whatever, right. made me crab and then it gave, you know, then did some kind of lingus. Like, right. no one's going to know who that guy is. It's not like you're putting names out there, right? Well, I do. I mean, if I put names out there, I usually tell them. Really? I'm, yeah, yeah. If I'm going to say their actual name. Um, but that's mainly for storytelling. With jokes, it doesn't matter. They can be Bob. Huh. They can be Dick. I call most of them Dick. Yeah, yeah. Um, they're always, it's just Dick, Dick, Dick. They're always Dicks. Mine is, mine is Jeff. Jeff. Regardless of if it's a white guy or, or ethnic guy, it's always Jeff. Always Jeff, yeah. That's weird, right? Yeah. No, I think it's great. So yeah, I was talking to the, to the Kenyan. His name is Jeff. Kenyan Jeff. <laughs> I don't know. I, I need to uh, come up with more original stuff. Yeah. I don't know. Ah, who cares? I mean, names, I mean, name specifics help. People like specifics, so if you use a name, that's great because then they can identify with whatever association they have with the name. But if you're not going to give a physical description of the person, mm-hmm. I mean, it's also it's just a name, right? Mm-hmm. So physical descriptions are really good as far as storytelling goes. You want right. to like describe them in some kind of. So usually use celebrity cheats. You know, you're like, oh, like if these two had a love child, this that's what he looked like, or that's what she looked like, you right. know, right. or uh, you know, like what was it? The one guy I was like, oh, he looked like a uh, George Lucas if he wasn't successful. <laughs> you know, like and then that 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 everybody had a really clear picture. Uh-huh. Everybody now knows George. That's yeah. oh, you know, yeah. yeah. Sure, so sure. and I called him George in the yeah, whole yeah. in the story and uh, and uh, yeah, they just see kind of like a, a dejected, probably a little bit more overweight George Lucas. I think you just described me. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm actually talking. This bit is actually about you. <laughs> like I this. knew you put out that binder. <laughs> that was it. Oh, well, if it cuts out, it's just the headphones. It's not the actual recording. Right. Yeah. So I, I wanna, was like, I, wanna, I yanked that here. I'm, I'm on this. a budget here. I'll move this cord. No, don't, no, it's great. Don't have enough Patreon uh, people. Yeah. To get a new uh, five dollar cable. But you got so. Patreon people. You got some. You just I don't have some. enough. Actually, I just found out I lost one. For it's for some reason, I'm like, what? Was it something I said? Is something the guest I had on? Or oh, they maybe they just yeah. you know got lost their job. I mean, it could have nothing to do with you, and it could yeah. Be... But for me, I feel like I'm the center of the world sometimes, right? I'm the center of the universe. Yeah, like, it has to be me. I did something wrong or some shit like that. Yeah. Oh, it's never about you. It's never about you. I was just I was just saying that in the car. I was like, yeah. you can just assume all day long. It's never about you. Right. right. It's always something else, unless it is about you, and then. If they're not pussies, they'll fucking tell you. You yeah. know what? You did this, and I'm mad about it, and that's why I'm not giving you any money anymore because right. you suck. And then you're like, oh, well, at least with that, that's helpful. Right. Like then right. you can learn something. Otherwise, it's just like there's no information. You uh-huh. know, uh-huh. they just stop giving you money. Where were you raised? I, I was born in Grass Valley, California. Where's uh, that at? It's uh like north of Sacramento. It's like east of Tahoe. Um, East of Tahoe, so it's a Reno area we're talking about. Uh, well, it's in California, yeah. So, but it's yeah, it's close. It's about 
hour and a half, two hours from Reno. What, what kind of town is it? Uh, Grass Valley. Well, the, the town I was born in is like a tweaker town, and. Um, is I explain the shrooms, getting the shrooms at, at an early age? Uh, well, so I was actually raised in Oregon House, California. Oregon House is like an even smaller town near Grass Valley, um, but by Bullard's Bar, if anybody knows where that is, um, kind of between Grass Valley and Marysville. Yeah, yeah. So just uh, 2,000 people, maybe, 2,200, I don't know. Not that many people. Right. Half Real of, small town, right? Very small, and half of them, I mean, we had, you know, half of them were in a cult, I was in that cult until I was five. I mean, I so I didn't really participate much. Whoa, what kind of cult was it? It was a fourth way Ospensky Gurdjieff cult. So it's basically a Christian-based cult. And then Ospensky and Gurdjieff were guys who were into consciousness, and they developed this thing called, I believe it was Gurdjieff, and then Ospensky kind of, uh, he was the one who had followers. Uh, Gurdjieff was very much like anti, don't follow me, don't listen to anybody, I'm not your guru. And then he became a ton of people's gurus just by being like, oh, I'm not your guru. You know? Was it like reverse psychology <laughs> yeah. tactic going there? Yeah, I don't know if he did it on purpose or what, but he got real pissed. So one of his students, <laughs> uh, Spensky, uh, right. starts going up like, okay, he's not your guru, but I am your guru. <laughs> well, and, I'll take the credit. Yeah, okay. he's, like, yeah. he's like, he doesn't want you Somebody to follow. Somebody has to. Somebody's got to be followed around, right? Yeah. Like So Ospensky uh, yeah. went off and started his own thing. And then a lot of people um, kind of were like, oh, you mean I can just go out there and... Um, the the cool thing about the cult that I was in, Robert Burton was the leader, or the cult that I was born in. I really don't, you know, I'm not, I wasn't a participant. You know, you're five. I you were five. raised in it. Yeah, right. and then I, they left when I was a kid. But the cool thing was is that they actively talked about the fact that they were in a cult. Yeah, yeah. So when my parents... Right, right in the open. It was all out in the open. It was like, yeah. yep, we're a cult. And uh, most cults do not do that. Yeah, I'm surprised they even used the word cult. Oh, yeah. No, they used it all the time. So my mom and my dad, after the fact that they... Were found, they being ironic... No. Or like, we're just going to make a cult and just say, yeah, we're a cult. Like, well, fuck it. I think it was just to, to like actively, so that when, because they were confronted with it a lot. I mean, they built their own little community out in the middle of Oregon House. So they had, I mean, they, they still to this day, there's a gateway you can't enter unless you're a member. There's, you know, there's uh, gilded statues all the way up. Mm. There's a beautiful, there's. Uh, do, yeah. do they manage their own town? Like, do, do, do they have their own police force and stuff? They like don't that? have their own police force. No, it's pretty small, but the property itself, they own a massive amount of property. So up there, they, used to have a functioning restaurant they had a lot of teaching houses uh they did have their own school lewis carroll which is where i went mm -hmm. um until you know until my parents left and um you know they had their own playhouse so they had a, a greek theater built up there it all i mean you know robert burton is gay when you drive up just because of the palm trees and the oranges <laughs> and the statues and the yeah, yeah. and the weird just greek buildings out in the middle of this this guy has way too much fashion for a straight guy yeah no yeah oh middle of nowhere it's like way too much taste he has a two-humped camel so anyway holy shit yeah he's got like <laughs> endangered species on that property sounds like your, your childhood must have been pretty good right i mean it's a pretty tiny community you got some you know weird stuff happening keep you entertained uh well, I mean, we were poor. I mean, when you're in a cult, you give all your money. It's just like church. You give all your money to the, the cult. So, right. But as a child, you don't have the concept of being poor necessarily the same way um, as an adult, right? Well, yeah. I mean, well, so at five, I didn't. But no, after that, I definitely did. I mean, poverty consciousness was a total part of my life as far as, I mean, my dad owns his own business. So we did construction. I started working with him when I was five. It was part, like, it was mandatory that my um. brother and I, I mean, we were gophers. You know, go for this, go for that. And, uh, you know, shoveled. We shoveled a lot of shit, literal poop and, yeah. and ditches and whatever else. So, yeah, we were always worried about money. That yeah. was, like, I definitely, I mean, yeah, I would say I knew what poverty was at, at a but pretty young age. that probably gave you a stronger work ethic, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely, yeah, definitely have that. Because there's definitely about some performers I've noticed that when they come from a place of poverty, there's like that, you know, that extra oomph they put into their, their work. 
in some way. Well, it's, yeah, pride, I think, too. I mean, cool. That, yeah. My, we, Maybe a chip on the shoulder. Like, I don't, this got to work. This fucking comedy has to work. I don't know. I don't have, I wouldn't say I have any of those kind of attitudes about it. I definitely, yeah. you know, I don't, I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I'm definitely like, well, I want to make something that I, that I enjoy. You right, know, I want to make right. something really good. But I think that's like with anything. And, uh, I mean, I was a server a lot, you know, or you work construction or whatever you do, you always want to do the best job you can. And, mm-hmm. um, and but, if you're not good at, you know, it's like people think that they should be doing something better with their lives, but they can't even fucking serve a table properly or, you know, be, they can't do like basic <laughs> shit. Right. It's like, right, right. okay, I'm sorry. You don't clean your house. You're a total fucking slob. You're a mess, yeah. but you think you deserve a better job. Entitlement. You, yeah. Are, are yeah. For it. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. So I don't, I don't, th- I don't think I have too much of that. Cause yeah. I'm no, like, that's good. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> so is that how your family got by? It was construction work? Construction, Both yeah. your parents in construction? Well, no. Well, my mom ran the business. I mean, he was a general engineer, so we did roads, pads, septics, and then eventually yeah. he started building houses. And just you and your brother? Me and my brother. I mean, we we were just like, I mean, he hired other people occasionally. We would have other um, people come in to do stuff, but he was pretty much just a one-man team, and then we just cleaned up after him. Uh-huh. So, yeah. So what was the moment? Like, all right, let's get out of here. Uh, for leaving that town? Yeah. Uh, 17. Um... I uh, was in adult ed. Um, my, uh, I had a job. I had two jobs. Anyway, I found. Uh, I ended up moving in with my fake Jewish aunt, who was also a uh, drug dealer, and uh, so she sold my dad's weed for him. And I moved in with her. She had this little granny unit in the back, and uh, yeah, yeah, just got a job. And then from that was in Nevada City, so slightly bigger town. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I ended up living in this other cool place, the Stone House. And then. I was 18 and I moved to Martinez randomly. Somebody had a uh, place for me down here. I moved to Martinez. I started working for a construction company in Oakland. Uh-huh. And uh, and then I moved to Southern California with my stalker boyfriend who found me in Martinez. And, uh, Wait, hold on. Like he stalked you to Martinez? Yeah, like he, he, yeah he found my phone number. His, uh, he, w- he, w- but you guys weren't together at the time? No, we were broken up. Oh, I yeah, see. Yeah, we oh, had broken up. And, that's, uh, that's sad. Yeah. I, that's why I moved to Martinez. I, yeah, something happened. No restraining order? No restraining order. I wasn't, I don't, I'm not really into litigious or calling the police or sure. using them as far as. Yeah, no, so he found me. His mother was dying. He leveraged my sympathy. Oh, and shit. I ended up moving to Rancho Cucamonga with him for uh, about a year or so. Cucamonga? Why is Rancho that? Cucamonga, yeah. Southern California. It's kind of near, um, it's uh, Fontana, Fontucky, we would call it. And then there's Etiwanda, Etiwindi. And then um, it's it's in the, it's in San Bernardino. It's in the Inland Empire. So it's right on the other side of L.A. Okay. It's very, very, very awful. Now, at this time, were you performing? I was. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I, well, okay. So I've always performed, but mainly I did theater. And then I did a lot of, like, speech and debate. And um, oh. so I was always, like, in front of people. That started, you know, in school or whatever. And then at that time, I think I was doing a lot of poetry. Uh, oh, which yeah. was, I went through a poetry phase. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Definitely. Yeah, what got you out of it? It's just awful, right? <laughs> well, my, my, my poetry was awful, so, yeah. People liked my poetry because, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very much a performer, you know, yeah. so I, I gave it a lot of energy. Well, but you, you seem to get you have a lot of life experience, you know, to put out there as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm trying to tap into more of it. Like, right mm-hmm. now, I feel like I mostly just talk about, uh, you know, sex and, and how messed sure. up it is. And well, it's relatable. It's very relatable. I'm trying- a lot of people, sex is fucked up in some way. Yeah. 
yeah, yeah. 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 And relating. Who's, who's having good sex these days? I don't know. Well, I'm having great sex. That's not oh, the problem. Good. <laughs> yeah, good. Well, not. you're one of the lucky ones then. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I say no to bad sex. I just I walk away. Yeah. I literally just get up and yeah. I go lock myself in the bathroom. I take a shower and <laughs> right. I'm hoping they're gone when I get out. You know, yeah, yeah, like yeah. that's like I'm not gonna put up with bad sex. Um, or put up with anything that I don't want to do. Yeah, yeah. You know, just so, say no. So you're always, you know, doing poetry, creative writing. That what? what, what yeah. Does Does your family also do that? Like your brother and your or your mom? Like my, some some creative gene must have been there. My mom. Well, we did like we had a we did a lot of art when we were kids. I mean, my mom was a she's a really good artist. I mean, she so she painted and, and she did a lot of drawing and she was always really good at that and. Uh, but uh, and then she was in a theater, so she was an actress when ah, I was a, a younger kid, you and she got sick of it because people are dicks. And then um, sure. I don't know, so she stopped acting at some point. I always, you know, I liked acting. I hated actors, so I did a lot of like um, <laughs> dancing not, stuff. And then actors hate themselves too. Yeah, so. yeah, it's obvious. It's really like <laughs> really obvious. But yeah, I just would always find some way to kind of yeah. get on stage. And then um, we're doing Shakespeare. Uh, yeah, I hate doing Shakespeare, though, because uh, people don't get that he has a sense of humor, and they mm. fucking ruin all the good lines by just being like, no, this isn't funny. It's like, it's so funny. They're making, he's making, uh, most people don't understand like, Shakespeare. Like, instead of delivering it like it should, they're, they're very, uh, uh, you know, just playing it. Yeah, they play it straight. Straight, yeah. And they play it like he's being serious, and there's no way in hell that guy is being serious. And I, it's not like I studied Shakespeare, but I get sarcasm, right? Sure. And that yeah. is some sarcastic shit. He he was a hilarious man. I mean, he wrote comedies and tragedies, and then people assume that if it's a tragedy, there's not any comedy in there. It's like, right. dude, he had plenty of moments where there was, you know... Isn't the genre called comedy tragedy or something like that? <laughs> yeah. Or tragedy comedy? Now, now tragic comedy. Tragic yeah, that, comedy. Yeah, yeah, that is a thing, but... So yeah, I hate doing Shakespeare. Dude, what if this whole time they just misinterpreted Hamlet? Mm. What if it was just meant to be a comedy? <laughs> it probably was. I mean, there's <laughs> there were probably so many jokes that most directors, uh, you yeah. know, just totally. And then the actors. I I think it is because old English is a little bit hard to. Oh. Um, and the iambic pentameter kind of stuff and. Yeah, that's just a rhythmic thing. That just makes it actually easy to say because okay. it, it, it's very smooth. You're mm -hmm. just like, it's, it's got this nice pattern. But it's mainly the certain words because I remember it, we went sitting with, a, we were doing a reading of something and just asking each other what these different lines meant. And the, I mean, everybody had a different meaning for, for the, you know, for one line. And it was like, Luckily, I did get confirmation that I was I was correct, but you can't c convince 12 people that think they're all right about, and we all have 12 different interpretations for uh, one line. So people just yeah. don't understand him. And I think that's why he's still being, produ like we still produce those plays so often is because no one's actually figured out what the fuck the guy was talking about. Yeah. I guess, I don't know, I think it's- It's a lot of frustration. It seems like you had a lot of that in the theater world. Yeah, well, they just they ruin stuff. I mean, they overact and they ruin stuff. And yeah, those so theater people are just kind of they're the nerds, you know. They're the right. kids in school. It's like and they're everybody's, you know. The I mean, at least in comedy, we're all prima donnas. We're all the center of our own little world. But at least um, it's mostly internalized. Like it, it doesn't get externalized in that way of like, mm. oh, I'm you know, I'm the lead in this play. So therefore, I'm gonna be the one running around backstage. You know, just. Well, everybody can bomb. Like, like you don't need you know someone to tell you you're not doing something right if you go up there. No, you're not getting laughs. Like, like you know you're fucking up. <laughs> you, know, you know, you know exactly. Yeah, yeah. And 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 no one else is in is, theater. You could you know go through a play for like months and perform it. And I don't know. Some people are like, oh, it was a great, great performance. I don't know. 
It was well in theater. If you screw up, you're. I mean, depending, like you're screwing up someone else's whole set. So, bombing and comedy, at least it just all falls on me. But if you screw up your lines, or if you skip your line, that's my. That's that's my cue. Yeah, your yeah. line is my cue, and you just fucking skip my cue. So you just ran over my next three sentences. So now I'm not. I'm, why am I on the stage? And you would yeah, get yeah. actors who would do that. Who would just they would skip your cue line, and they wouldn't even say it. And then you'd be like. <laughs> I can't jump in now because I have no lead in and every right. night would be different, but they're basically just trying to make sure that you don't get any spotlight. And yeah, yeah. they're like, I'm literally going to step on your lines and pretend like I didn't, I, you know, Oh, I just forgot. Yeah. I just forgot. I had a bad experience. So I, I did a little bit of theater, you know, I accident in some way. Like I, at first I, but the first theater I did was the miser, which is a French comedy. Yeah. And I had like a small role. I only came in the end. And I had like, I don't know, like five lines. I was like, fucking perfect, right? Yeah. Just, you know, I just do that. I don't, I'm not doing shit. I just, you know, go in last minute and then boom, that's it, right? Yeah. I just, then I, for some reason, that, that I was, you know, I was like, oh, well, I did it once. It's pretty easy. <laughs> so I, I auditioned for another one and I got it, which was a dramatic role, Splendor of the Grass. And I played the father figure. You know, this is high school theater, by the way, if you notice. Yeah. The, the father, because I was balding at the time. So they put me as the father figure. So it's a super dramatic role. And the last scene I have before I commit suicide, I'm trying to explain to my son, you know, about like the horrors of life and why he should, you know, whatever. But point I'm trying to make is like, so the whole scene, you go from like me going, like, hey, son, how are you going? To like, oh, it's horrible, this and that. I forgot like two paragraphs of lines. And I just froze and I look at my actor and there's like hundreds of people here. And, and he looked at me like, oh, shit, like something's not right yeah. and I just skipped to the next thing of me just getting angry randomly <laughs> uh, and yeah so I was like yeah this is not for me well that's why <laughs> improv is great because you will fudge your lines up and I have definitely had that moment and you're like oh my god for the life of me I don't know so you just go something like it right? and you're like I know this doesn't have to be perfect but I know that the gist is is that I gotta say something like this so that he can oh god it was some play about we were two bums trying to get uh, locked in jail so that we would get food for the night or something. And I just l forgot that. And then I just started, buh, 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 buh. and then, and then we went back, you know, you mm -hmm. go back into the, so that's where improv really helps. Cause if you do forget your lines, just say fucking something. That, right. Anything. Not, anything. Yes. And anything, yeah, yeah. anything. Did, did you have any favorite roles that you played? Um, no, I mean, well, I didn't do, I guess I, I mean, most of it was in school. The last play that I was in that was like official, I was Octavia in Anthony and Cleopatra and Anthony and Cleopatra. And, uh, I liked being Octavia. I didn't like how the director interpreted it. They were trying to make it very sexy. So they wanted me to be like all over the erotic uh, take of, of <laughs> there was an orgy scene and yeah, yeah. it was, it was awful. Um, it was, was this in LA? No, this was in Nevada city. This okay. was when I lived back there the last time. So I've moved a lot. I have not lived. I mean, I've lived in San Bernardino, but I have not lived in LA proper. Okay. I, after right. that play, I guess that was like five, seven, eight years ago. I have not had any desire mm. to do small theater, uh, work with no. How about screen acting? Screen acting, I've helped. I've I've been in a lot of people's like weird little videos, but no, mm. no, never anything. 
on screen that I can. Uh, but it seems like you're very passionate about it. Do you have any aspirations for like creator, like writing, playwriting, and stuff like that? No, uh, everything I write is to perform. I like being on stage. I like writing to perform. I write to perform. I would never write for someone else. I would never write for I mean, unless unless I just got to that place where I was just so good at writing for myself that I was like, oh, I can write. I mean, I help people write. I've helped. I've worked. Mm -hmm. I've coached people as far as writing their own stuff goes. But no, I have no desire to write a screenplay or. Um, or to write anything, really. I mean, I write every day, but I don't know. I don't. I want to write so that I can say it. I'm just. It. That's it. I'm writing it so that I can go on stage and say it. Okay. And uh, that's yeah. When did you get involved with comedy? Comedy. I uh, I moved to New York. Uh, it was 2011, um, September 2011. Um, I guess I moved there that summer, and then I I was gone. I went home anyway. So moved there. Um, was doing a lot of monologues and doing a lot of clowning and doing a lot of singing in the street, dancing in the street. Um, Man, you're a true hustler. And so I was just running around being weird and people, and the, the people I did the monologues with, that was at um, Cornelia Street Cafe, which is like pretty, uh, it's a pretty famous little small cafe. She really loved me. A lot of the people there really loved me. Every, what was it famous for? Uh, for they do performance. Cornelia Street okay. Cafe, it's just, it's they've had performances there. It's this tiny, you go downstairs, it's just this beautiful kind of iconic, you know, New York little theater uh, space. And so I was doing monologues there. And then doing clowning at, at uh, wherever the hell I was. And uh, people kept telling me I was funny. They were like, so you're a comedian, so you're a comedian. And I kept telling people to you know, go fuck themselves. And Did you see yourself as a more of a dramatic performer or something? No, like I just didn't know what comedy was. So, uh, being, so being born in a cult, we didn't have a TV. Uh, even after we left the cult, we didn't. Um, so I grew up kind of like reading books and not watching television so I never really saw stand-up I saw was there no sense of humor in the cult like that, well no, definitely no? not in the cult but just the my exposure to stuff like stand-up was non-existent comedy as a career necessarily yeah I Got mean it. I saw I mean I loved you know Steve Martin Jim Carrey Lily Tomlin uh you know um oh god even what's her name Bette Midler fucking oh my god what oh, is she's it? great yeah uh so there was a lot of comedic actors obviously I love Bill Murray obviously I loved uh Eddie Murphy uh like oh god who else there's just so many of them Dan Aykroyd um what's ugh. so I saw comedies in film but I'd never seen stand-up mm. before so when people told me I mean I think I maybe saw one stand-up set in my life and at this point, I'm 25, living in New York, and people are telling me I'm a comedian. I didn't know what that meant at all. Um, they said, you know, you, so you do stand-up? And I was like, no, I don't do. So I went to uh, an open mic at uh, the UCB, and I got up on stage with no jokes, and I riffed for three minutes, and because, and, you know, that's all you get in New York is three minutes. And uh, I got one laugh, and I got off stage, and I was like, oh my God, you are terrible. You are so terrible at this. And I was like, okay, we're going to go do it again. And then we started doing the mic scene. <laughs> I just started every night. I was like, all right, that's what I was doing. So, yeah, it was and it's so easy there to find a bunch of mics. Um, the community was pretty good. At the time, there were no women, though. There was like two other chicks I might run into every once in a while. Really? And this was in the 2000s? This is, yeah, 2011. Yeah, yeah, there were no women. So 2012. So I kept doing it. Then I ended up moving to Canada. I did it there. And then I moved back to Nevada City. I did it there. And then I finally moved here to the Bay Area. And I've been here for five years, I guess. And I've been, you know. How, how was that transition from, like, New York style of performances to the Bay Area? Did you see any noticeable differences or, or similarities? Well, the main main thing was is that I knew I wasn't good enough to be there. 
as far as at New York, yeah. And I mean, there are a lot of shitty people there too, but I just knew I needed to get better. So mm -hmm. the main difference is, is that San Francisco is way friendlier for trying to get better uh -huh. because there, there's just there's more there's more time, there's more venues. Um, it's not as fast paced. Everybody in New York that I knew that was doing really well ended up moving to LA, which I found you know hilarious to do to do commercials, screen stuff, whatever. Mm -hmm. I did meet a lot of really. I mean, these guys were really hustling, so it was fun to watch them. And then to go, oh, that's what I'm supposed to be doing. So I'm just going to, okay, you're going to four places. I'm going to go to four places. I'm, um, the main difference is, is that people in California um, are more sensitive. So yeah. New York, they know you're joking. You know, yeah. they know you're joking. And uh, it's, so it's either funny or it's not. But they know you're joking. Either way, they know it was a failed joke. They don't. They don't ever like because I get very dramatic and, and angry on stage, and they never fucking took that seriously in New York. They always were like, "Oh, she's, she's just going with the rest, or, or whatever, or that joke sucks, or she doesn't have any jokes." I mean, they would know that I was riffing and I had no material before they would think, "Oh my god, that woman's having a nervous breakdown." Like here, if I just go off on some shit, they're like, "Oh my god, she's having a nervous breakdown. Is she all right?" Uh -huh. Was, "Oh my god, did she just say she's sexually compatible with?" Children, did she, you know, like, or what? And they they get all upset. New Yorkers have a way better sense of humor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. That's my main thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I just performed at Hollister because you know those people in Central Valley, those super nice people, mm -hmm. too nice. Because mm -hmm. I did a bit about you know losing my job. And like and after my set, they're like, oh, dude, I'm so sorry you lost your job. It's like, no, I was just kidding. I was just. <laughs> it's a joke. Man. Yeah, yeah. Oh God, yeah. They actually. But but it came from a place of like they really cared. Yes. I'm like, dude. you... you it's amazing. I want to move out here. Yeah. There are, there's nothing to do over there. So Hollister. That's what is that's north, south? Where? South. South of here? South, south. Okay. Yeah, the yeah, small yeah. towns are kind of cute, but yeah, that kind of stuff where people will apologize or say they're so sorry. Yeah. And you're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, what? what's just, what's happening to me right, right now? Right, right, right. Yeah. I mean, LA, they don't take you seriously either. I mean, I think down in LA, there's so many actors, but they also know that you're joking. There's something about the Bay Area in particular where um, I think it's because we have this whole idea about... We're supposed to be accepting of everybody and everything. And sure, it really yeah. does. I mean, the, the PC thing, obviously, but it really does screw up. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, screaming about trans people and then having to be like, oh, my God, you hate trans people? No. No, it's just a good joke. Just got a couple <laughs> critiques. That's all. <laughs> I, 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 got, I got questions. There's room for improvement somewhere right? Any in anything. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Right, yeah. Right, right. That's well, awesome. Yeah. So you're, you're here. Uh, you, how long have you been doing comedy now? So I guess from 2011 to now, so it's uh, it was it's seven it was seven years or seven years a couple weeks ago. Has your process changed since? How, how would you describe it initially getting in? Because I'm sure you apply what you learn in theater to what it is now. Yeah, I mean theater mainly just I mean I you know being present on stage was the thing that 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 was the thing. The process changed because I it took me two years to learn how to write a joke, so I just did two years of just riffing, riffing, riffing every night, and then it would be like like crowd work. Crowd work for sure. I mean, yeah. with heckler, I loved hecklers because they always gave me something to work with. But yeah, it'd be some nights I would just be like on and everything, you know. And then and then some nights I would just be off, and I would be like, whoa, what what was the difference? Because I hadn't written jokes either time. And then I started realizing that it was you know just me whether I was in my body or not, whether I was scared versus confident, whether you know how I was how I was arriving essentially, because uh, I used to think that you know, oh, it's the first joke. They determine on the first joke if they like you. And then I realized that, no, they know before you even grab the microphone if they like you or not. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a lot quicker. So it's really just about how you arrive. And then from there, you know, it doesn't matter. And if, you know, so my process, now I write jokes um, 
you know, with punchlines and stuff, um, I still try to riff a lot. And yeah. I mean, riffing stuff for me. I can't really riff much. Is, is there a certain thing you do? Is certain like, uh, all right, I see this guy's wearing this thing. I go after that or some shit or. Well, crowd work, yeah. So crowd work is something I need to work on. Crowd work I do incidentally. Uh, I don't ever consider it crowd work. It's just if something does catch me or if there's some kind of a distraction or something that's overwhelming. Well, you got to acknowledge it. Yeah, know? yeah. You're just yeah. acknowledging the thing. But usually I don't do crowd work um, specifically. I mean, like I, I'll pull people in with bits, but there's not a lot of space for them. Uh, I have a thing about giving my uh, my microphone to other people, and with the audience, if you're soliciting, you know, quite you know, asking questions, you know, they could they could either be one of those cool people who has a one word answer, or they could be that asshole who goes off for three sentences, and you're like, fuck you, never mind, I don't care anymore. Yeah. You're just supposed to say yes or no. Are you supposed to say I'm a grave digger, and that's it, move on. And uh, but riffing usually what'll happen you know the best for me it's just something I'm upset about so yeah. if I'm really I mean and that's kind of funny too because I don't really actually know if I care about anything at this point in my life but uh, you know fabricating some kind of upset so mm. I'm mad at something so I get right. a lot of shit for being aggressive um, uh, assertive and uh, for knowing what I want so a lot of the jokes do come back to what it's like to assert yourself in a world where you're expected to be passive. And even though that is changing, it's still the, the standard operating procedure for most people is to kind of uh, accept women when they're passive and to reject them when they're aggressive. And so, yeah, a lot of the jokes go back to my my interactions with men and other women in those instances. So a lot of it is like feminist, seemingly feminist stuff. Um, yeah, I definitely talk about sex a lot. Definitely talk about... Well, the sense of inequality, where do you feel that derived from? Well, I think do you feel like something you had to deal with at an early age, or is it something... Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, as a, yeah, as a chick, well, my dad, I mean, my dad worked construction, so proving to those boys, to, to the, if there were other people there, proving to them that I belonged to be, you know, to be there, that it wasn't just nepotism, that I, that I, that I was capable, that I was, that I was also... I was also a boss at a very young age, so I had a lot of uh, people work under me. Um, the way that they would treat me, uh, as far as trying to manipulate me emotionally goes, and it was just stuff they would have never done to a guy. And it was because I was smaller than them, and it was because I was female. So yeah, there's a lot of... When you just say what you mean and what you want as a woman, it's it just I got a lot of pushback. And I don't know if it's... I don't think... I think it's been like that since the beginning of time. I don't think that hmm. it's... Interesting. I don't think it's, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I even care. Uh, it's just definitely that anger. Well, and I was in a lot of abusive relationships. And uh, so I have a lot of like actual experience with, with, with what, what they call, you know, mutual uh, abuse and stuff like that. So I was pretty heavily abused. So a lot of, yeah, that kind of drew out, first of all, my accountability, like why, how did I get in that situation? Mm -hmm. Why did I accept that thing? And then, um, you know, kind of making fun of it, you know, like I'm trying to talk about that more now, like, and, uh, and, and making it really funny, um, is, is really hard to make it funny, but you know, it's like, what's the joke? I say, I don't know how I feel about domestic violence because I know all the men who hit me were just trying to calm me down. And, uh, so, you know, like stuff like that, where, yeah. how do I, uh, how do I talk about it in a real way where, uh, not being a victim of it, but use utilizing the experience. So I think I have a ton of anger about, uh, about being a woman. I feel like there's a lot of stuff that I don't 
that I don't like. So that yeah, definitely. I think that. But so it's, it's not it's not in a self hating way though. It, it's more about of of just this is the shit I'm going. I have to go through. Well, it's it, for a long time it was self hating because it was like, well, I thought if I was a six foot tall man, I wouldn't have to deal with any of this shit. You know, like I could just be me, you know, go through, and I would be a fucking tyrant. It was what I would be if I were a very large man. I would be, I would be unbearable. I mean, it just would be awful. Uh, so I feel like I got this tiny little body for a reason so that I wouldn't be a tyrant. But yeah, for a long time it was, it <laughs> you was. Feel like God was humbling you or something? Well, I think, you know, for, yeah, I think little aggressive people, really aggressive people probably should be smaller. And uh, I thought it was a disadvantage. I mean, I, you know, my dad was a really overbearingly uh, powerful, strong male figure. My mom was an extremely petite, fragile figure. I felt like, um, you know, women were described to me as being dependent. Mm-hmm. Um, women were described to me as being, um, you know, basically incapable of making up their own minds and making decisions and being. And my, you know, dad kind of pressed me with this whole idea of you have to be independent. You can't depend on anybody. You cannot be like women. Women are dependent and you don't want to be like that. So for a long time, it was self-hating. I wanted to be as much of a man as I could be for Mm -hmm. myself because I didn't like seeing a lot of the ways that I saw women behave, which was as if they were helpless or they needed somebody to do something for them. I was like, well, I don't want to be like that. That's fucking pathetic. And then I ended up getting into a lot of abusive relationships and being exactly that person I didn't want to be. So that was the best thing that could have happened to me because it was Mm -hmm. like, I thought I was better than these women. And then I, and then I... It could happen to anybody. Yeah. You know, male or female. Like you you think you know... When to acknowledge when when it's getting abusive. Yeah. But it's sometimes love or whatever it may be could really blind people. Yeah. You know, because I have a friend right now who she she just got out of kind of an abusive relationship. And she's like, I never thought I was that type of person. Yeah. You know, that type of person that would just tolerate that stuff. And it's like, when, when you're trying to, you know, make someone part of your life, you, you, you would sacrifice so much of yourself and, and bullshit like that. You, you let it go. And and the thing is that you shouldn't blame themselves. For it necessarily it's just you've gone through it you can acknowledge it now yeah now was what was the point where it kind of turned around for you where you was more because it seemed like by now it seems like you're more accepting of it yeah well it was i mean so when i left my last so i was engaged twice my last fiance was django and he kind of got me into theater again i mean i was always performing but he kind of really asserted that you are you're 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 an actress and he was a comedian so when we we broke up um, and that was, I mean, it was an awful breakup and I, I mean, I love the guy to pieces, but he was, he was a shithead. And so that breakup was when I moved to New York and when I moved to New York and I did start doing stand up, a lot of things changed because first of all, the, the first two, I would say first three, four years of comedy was just me spewing out my anger and my hate. And it was like a real, really cathartic regurgitation. And I was scaring the shit out of people. Um, I was talking about rapes. I was talking about getting beat up and I was just blasting. And it was really just this like, um, outlet, outlet and yeah, yeah. my own form of therapy. Cause I had been to therapy and therapists are usually totally full of shit and or insane. <laughs> right. So it, what was cool about it? Cause it was, it was really painful. Cause I could see myself doing this, scaring people going off and just kind of you know, yeah, it was just lashing out. I wanted everyone to feel just as bad. I wanted them to finally see my pain, right? And mm-hmm. and it took me, I would say, f- almost four years to realize that I was just hurting people. And I mean, not just, there were plenty of nights where I made people laugh. Obviously, I wouldn't have kept going if it was always bad. But seeing myself project that amount of hate 
out into the world started really hurting. And then that kind of forced me to actually deal with it. And the the only way that I actually dealt, like uh, started dealing with it was taking ownership. Because for, for those years, I was still convinced that, that I was just a victim of these people. These terrible, terrible people had done this terrible, terrible thing to me that I didn't deserve it. And they were bastards and I had never done anything wrong in my life. And it was like, I, I would say it took me, yeah, it took me about four years to realize that to forgive those people yeah. and then to realize how I was complicit. And That's the hardest part. Yeah, and it yeah, was, yeah. and from there, then I then I started feeling like a whole person. But without comedy, I don't know. And it was just because you know the audience is like a mirror. You're receiving them. You are receiving them. You're not actually doing anything. That you're receiving them. And when you're when you are just throwing shit at them, you're not receiving them. And when you do see all the fucking hate you just put on it, like, and you see it reflected back at you through them. Yeah. I was like, oh my god, I don't want to be putting this out into the world. This is awful. This is not what I wanted to do at all. Um, so yeah, taking ownership of, of the experience and forgiving my abusers was kind of, that was when it start, stuff started changing. So I definitely right. think comedy helped me do that because if I hadn't seen it on their faces and hurt, like, you know, or scared as many people as I scared, I don't think I would have ever dealt with it. What was the turning point? Was there a specific event or was it, what, what was the, the aha moment where you're like, I, I got to turn this around? Um... Well, I don't know. I mean, I would say it was in the last three or four, three something, something years. I don't know. It was, it was just realized it was hurting. It hurts you, you know, it hurts yeah. so much. And I don't know it. There were a lot of people who told me to stop, you know, to not do what I was doing. Cause I do project a lot of, and now the intensity comes from a place of love and I can yeah. be very angry on stage, but I'm coming from a loving place. Well, with these things, it has to be a, a, a a journey the person has to has to come around you can't because you can't just someone just can't put a wagging finger in front of your face yeah you know be like oh you're doing this wrong this and that yeah the person has to go through their own journey of acknowledging all right i went through some shit i gotta turn it around yeah i don't know if there was like a moment moment but it was definitely like i wanted to maintain the energy i want like the high energy uh, but I didn't want to scare people anymore. And it was just taking ownership of that and going, wait a minute, Alyssa, you're not up here to, to scare people. You're up here to make them laugh. And you yeah. can make Sometimes them laugh. Sometimes we forget that, don't we? Yeah, we do. It was a good point. Where I, I, I was I was a bitter, bitter, bitter fucker, you know? <laughs> and they kind of to a point, who was it? Was my, You know Faco, right? Yeah, love Faco. Yeah, I love him. He goes, what, why the fuck are you doing this? Yeah. I was like, what are you talking about? Why the fuck are you doing this? If you, at the end of the day you just hate yourself and and you're just, and I was like, man, he's, he's he kind of really put me. I was like, yeah, yeah. Well, why am I doing this? Yeah, you know. So, so, so yeah. So I had to go through that shit. It's. I think. I think it's good to go through that because it. Otherwise, you are just kind of putting stuff out there, not really taking any responsibility for it. And, yeah. Because it was so dark, the stuff I was doing. I mean, I was doing rape jokes pretty solidly for about a year that were brutal. And I was getting laughs sometimes, but then also I was getting... So I think it was... It it started hurting, and then I started realizing that a lot of it wasn't sincere. Because mm -hmm. if it... it's That's the difference between punching down and punching up, right? Punching up is... is uh, punching up is really acknowledging where you... If I'm just going to, like, say that someone else is a piece of shit, it doesn't matter if they're taller than me or if they were the perpetrator or whatever. If I'm going to just come from the self-righteous place of, you know, I know and you're the bad guy, then... Because th that it's just not sincere. The right. truth is, is that we're we're all 
you know, kind of floating between both of those places. And we all get to make tons of choices all the time about which direction we're going. So, yeah, I don't know. I think I realized that, I don't know, but it's gotten better. It's definitely gotten better. I, I'm I mean, happy to hear that. That's yeah, good. Yeah. That's awesome. That's yeah. awesome. Now, uh, do you primarily focus on performing here in the Bay Area? Are you? I seen you. Where have you, I seen you at Slapface? That's yeah. in Fremont. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll go where any anywhere they they book me. Um, you I you stopped by for Scotty once. That's how I met you. I know. Yeah, for yeah, Scott, yeah. I want to come back. Great. That's a Wednesday. Yeah, that was yeah, yeah. so fun. That was a fun yeah. night. There was a, Cody Woods was there. Brian Blanco was there. Yeah. Who else was there? Brian it was Blanco. that was a really yeah. great. Yeah. It was before he moved. That was fun. Um, yeah, I want to come back. I have car issues, so I usually just go where I can go. I noticed you're driving a Ford. I'm yeah, I got no, a just <laughs> Crown Vic exactly. <laughs> You got a room. cop car. I got a cop car. Uh, so, yeah, anywhere they let me and anywhere I go, I try to perform when I go other places. But, yeah, if they book me, I will go there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like, I will find it. Now, you, you touched on briefly about, you know, not many women being in comedy in New York, uh, which which got me a little shocked. I figure by now there's a lot more. Now, no, now there's tons. But But from 2011 to now, it's only a span of seven years. Yeah. Yeah, it changed a lot. It was kind of cool because you would be just surrounded by forty dudes, and uh, and so at, fir- at first, because I'm used to that in construction, so I never think yeah. that there's anything weird about it right. when I'm surrounded by a bunch of guys. But they definitely were like, they did not know how to talk to women. Most most of them, there were mm-hmm. a, f- a few who were like properly socialized, but uh, not that many of them. So you definitely you felt like an outsider, incidentally, and. And initially I took it personally and then I realized they just don't know how to talk to women and they're intimidated by by all women you know so it wasn't well, that, uh, most no. funny women I think most guys most uh, most uh, close-minded guys are afraid of funny women in some uh, way yeah I wouldn't say I was funny then but you know, like I wouldn't say that but definitely just a woman being around they were like uh and you know so I made a few friends there and, and in yeah. the scene and uh but yeah, there was just not a lot. So now it's cool. Now everywhere I go, I mean, there's still st- stuff like you know. Yes, there's lots of showcases with all guys on it. I don't really. I hate doing all women shows. I do them, but mm. I. Kind Why is of, that? I because I I feel like it's um, focusing on the wrong thing. Mm. The fact that you know who cares? Like who cares? Like I don't care who I'm watching. I mean, it's nice when shows are balanced. It's nice when they're but all women shows. It's just annoying. They're just, it's just, I don't know why I don't like it. It's just, yeah. it feels like. Well, I understand, you know, because for, you know, for example, for, for Scotty, now we're doing uh, the, the Women's Night, Comedy Night, Women's LGBTQ Night. And at first, you know, a lot of people were, were not, not against it because they're mis- not because not they're anti-women or anti-gay, but it's like, we we're definitely it's like, funny is funny. Yeah. We don't care who you are, what you are. Yeah. If you could perform and you're funny, that's who are the people that, you know, should be doing this. Right. So I, you know, I would have a lot of debates about with different comedians about it, and different takes. And I think that's our, our our initial defensive reaction. In some ways, we feel like we we are the uh, uh, we own some way comedy, and this is how it should be. And at the end of the day, you know, don't matter who you are, like it's race, religion. If you're funny, you're funny. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, so I, I totally get that that yeah. that per- perspective. Well, it's like you're giving me a. Um, it's like I'm getting a a benefit that is kind of unearned. And I mean, like I used to get it at Brainwash. I got it a lot because you know the women sign up first, odd numbers only, right? Mm-hmm. And you go there, and uh, it w- that was basically just to give women 
the impetus to actually show up like the like see look see it won't be because often enough you would I, w- I mean I've had that experience at tons of mics where you have 40 guys rush the list or rush the whatever thing and then if you don't push your way through them and just go fucking I'm signing up I got here first I got here before you I'm putting so I would have to do that a lot mm-hmm. and I don't I don't mind having to do that I'm not I'm not afraid of like pushing past people and being like no bitch I got here before you I'm putting my name down but a lot of a lot of women don't necessarily want to do that so just making it a nice little space where hey you can sign up you don't have to push your way through a a giant crowd of you know socially awkward men um that 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 is kind of helpful but it's also like why am I getting this this vagina privilege like I don't you know like if I like somebody did that at uh Penelope last week they were doing women sign up first uh even numbers only, right? Well, what they should do, just give the list to the women first. They didn't do that. Just give the list to the women who are there. And then afterwards, they kept leaving. All the women had signed up finally. Mm-hmm. And they kept leaving the even spaces open. And they would, and then they were like, well, we have to leave them open. And I'm like, for who? And they're like, for the women. I'm like, the women who aren't here? Right, right. This isn't like, oh, you, you know, we're not. <laughs> no, if they're here, great. We get to sign up first. If they're not here, we're not saving seats for someone who may or may not show up mm-hmm. like you know that kind of st- I just thought it was really mm-hmm. stuff like that I don't know and then I think with all girls shows or all women shows it just kind of it, it reminds you that there are many shows that are all male and nobody they're not called the male review you know they're not called all men to you know like it's not so yeah yeah it, testosterone night or something like that right yeah yeah. yeah yeah exactly which it should be if, if we're gonna do it equally but also right. like yeah just book people just book people and just put funny people up there just put funny people up there and try and try to make sure it's not all white dicks yeah okay. you know like, <laughs> like people get sick of watching white guys talk forever you know it's like that's it. well I'll tell you what you know uh, I don't know how it is but I'm pretty there's a good time where my Frascati was mostly, no offense to your friend here, but mostly white guys. You guys don't get me wrong. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, but, you know, there's more diversity now, and that's always refreshing as a host, you know, because, yeah. you know, you're going through, you know, usually the same sets yeah. every week. And the more diverse perspectives there are, the better. Yeah, it's just more fun for everybody because that's why, I think that's why we do it, right, is because I have an experience that you don't have, or sometimes it's relatable, but sometimes it's like a telescope, you know, and you're, you're getting, you're getting a window into a world where you have no idea what that thing is about. Like when I start talking about dating a murderer on stage, there are very few people who can relate to that. I'm doing like a tunnel thing and I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not trying to make it relatable. Right, I'm trying right. to show them this window, you know, and then, you know, so yeah, the more perspectives, the better. But it seems like from the beginning, you're very authentic. You must have been very authentic. You know, yeah. You mentioned that you, for two years, you're just the rawest, raw form you were at the time. Yeah, it was. That's pretty important, you know, is being authentic in developing your voice. I think some people come in with, like, all right, this is jokey jokes kind of stuff, which is great, but there's certain points, like, all right, there's a point where you need to distinguish yourself, you know, from, you know, someone who's tell jokes and someone who's an actual comic. Yeah, I would just say it was because I didn't know how to tell jokes or what jokes really were. I mean, the jokes I knew were street jokes that my dad told that were really gross, you know. And that's the that was like the way I knew comedy was through construction workers. And so they're all dumb blonde prostitute, like uh, priest fucking people, like whatever. Yeah. Those jokes, you know, with jokes we've all heard. And that was the only so I didn't think of I didn't think of comedy as like some high art form. I thought of it as a way to bullshit mm-hmm. and a way to like ingratiate yourselves, with, you know, with people. I, it was like it was kind of like flirting. 
but it was like, oh, I'm going to tell you this really awful thing. You're going to laugh about it, and then we're going to be we're going to be pals. Right. It's a bonding thing. It was a bonding thing, and then the majority of the jokes I heard were like all you know about whores and. You know, or someone's daughter who's going to get fucked or, you know, something. They were just all gross. I mean, most yeah. street jokes are kind of like gross and whatever. And so when I started writing jokes, I just thought, well, I'll do the opposite. I'll just talk shit about dumb men mm-hmm. instead of dumb whores. Yeah. And then we'll see. You know, so that kind of that definitely or, or, or dumb men whores, dumb yeah. man whores. But yeah, yeah. Um, I definitely. Yeah, I didn't think of it as some kind of like I just thought, oh, this is just a way to like warm people up mm-hmm. and. What was your family's reaction to you doing stand-up? Well, I didn't tell them for a long time because I, I always, I kind of, I have one of, I'm one of those people who thinks that if you've only been doing comedy for two years and you tell people you're a comedian, you're a lying sack of shit. <laughs> and, but that's like a harsh judgment, right? You know, I try not sure. to do that to yeah. people, but no, I didn't tell anybody. Uh, when they finally found out, um, <clears throat> I've always had like, I, I mean, I've had like, I don't know, 40 different types of jobs. I don't I've had a lot of jobs and I've moved a lot of places. So when I first told my dad, he was like, oh, okay, cool, whatever. Uh, with my mom, she was like, if I'm on stage, my mom is happy. My mom has always thought that, that I should be on stage. She doesn't care how I'm on stage. She just thinks that's where I should be. So she's very supportive. She Yeah, very. Well, and I've been performing since I was a kid. So yeah, artistically speaking, she just was kind of like, oh yeah, I mean, I used to sing and all that. As long as I'm performing, my mom's happy about it. So the first time she saw me do comedy, I, it was actually a really great night. And so... She thought she she's she's a hippie. She, she was like, I thought you were channeling something, and at the time I hadn't written any jokes ever, so I probably was channeling something. So she was just like, just keep going. Now my dad has seen me perform like three, three or four times, and uh, my brother's seen me perform way too many times. Like my jokes just bother him at this point because unless they're brand new jokes, he's probably heard them. Mm-hmm. Uh, brother's super supportive. Uh, he's a freelance writer now. Um, oh, what kind of stuff he's writing? He just writes content, just crap, just, you know, just oh. a lot of crap. But he writes for, I mean, he writes for Amnesty International as well. He writes for the NRA as well. He writes for... Oh, so like, like copyright stuff. Yeah, he's cool. a copywriter, yeah. And, uh, yeah, they're all... Dad's actually really into it now, which is kind of funny. Uh, they're like, oh, we saw it coming. No, well, no, my friends from high school said that, mm. which I thought was very strange. You still keep in touch? Uh, somehow there are just very few most of them I won't talk to because their lives are you want to be surrounded by people who are smarter and better looking than you and like actually doing good stuff with their life if they're just no wonder I don't hang out with anybody from high school anymore (laughs) right right you're just they all left me no (laughs) they left you well no but I mean they still live in Oregon House a lot of them are just like you know uh, you know had kids way too young or maybe all they do is meth or whatever I mean the town I'm from not a lot of people left so the one person I'm still close with is Ashley and Ashley has come to a few of my shows and she is super supportive and she was like oh I, I always knew I always knew and I was like how she's like well you were always funny mm-hmm. and I I never thought of myself as a funny person I just I thought I was a weird person and I would say what I thought which was usually funny so you felt like you were in some ways class clown oh definitely yeah Yeah, I wouldn't have had any friends if I hadn't have been I would do things that other people wouldn't do you know like suck on a blue marker just to make my mouth blue or just to do Jesus I would do weird shit just to just to um, yeah to uh, yeah I was really good at throwing myself under the bus or making you know making fun of myself and then uh-huh. Making friends through that. I was a pretty big loser up until the point where I started making fun of people. Big loser? Sounds like you're popular. Yeah, in high school, once I got people. boobs, I, I was totally popular <laughs> with, once I got the titties. But um, yeah, yeah. 
Now, before that, I was kind of just a nerdy kid with hippie parents. Um, I was the snob. They thought I because I was snob. They thought I was a snob because I was smarter than them, uh, apparently. Or I was the I was the. So yeah, I st- I stopped being so good in school. Just, like, what kind of stuff were you nerding out about? Um. Well, I I would nerd out about all of it. I wanted to get an A. I mean, my the biggest nerd thing was I wanted the A. I had very low self esteem, so if I didn't get an A, I felt like shit. Jesus. All right. So if I got a B plus, I would go to the teacher and I would say, "Excuse me, Mrs. Hogarty, uh, why did I get a B plus on this assignment?" And uh, she would say, "What?" <laughs> you know, and I would say, "I need you to point out everything I did wrong and what do I need to do to get an A." And I was doing that in like the third grade. And, um, and and then I would go home and I would rewrite it and then I would get an A plus, you know, and uh, that was so it was just a matter of uh, I that was my self-esteem. My self-esteem was I got the A and I was so in that way. Yeah, I was a, probably a pain in the ass. I never I mean, I tutored a lot of kids. I never like thought I was smarter than anybody. But for me, it was the only way that I um, felt good about myself. So what was the game? What was the game plan out of high school? Uh, I didn't graduate it's, 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 high school. Um, dropped the, out? Yeah, I dropped out. Uh, I, I'll, adult ed dro- kicked me out because I missed an appointment. Anyway, lo- uh, the plan was, I mean, the plan in high school. I mean, that, w- that must have been devastating, you know, considering the, your grades mattered to you a lot. And then to, to drop it out. It was very upsetting. I still have yeah. dreams about going back and finishing. And it's so funny. I don't think there's any point. Um, yeah, no, I was. What would you study, do you think? What, what would be something you, you would get into? If I were going to study something, well, I always, um, I, I like people. And uh, so when I was in college, I was doing communication classes. I mean, I passed all the G, the, the general, you know, whatever. I passed mm-hmm. all those tests. So um, technically, I didn't even need a GED to go to college. Once I found that out, I was like, oh, cool. Um, but yeah, I was upset. I was really upset about not graduating. My parents got a divorce. My grades started failing. I got multiple jobs. I lived on my own. I started selling weed. Uh yeah. It, 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 you, you, were you on survivor mode pretty much? I was, yeah, on also, and also, you know, when you're that young and you, you know, I was smart and this was something that made me feel good about myself. Um, I was definitely convinced that these people were assholes and they were idiots and that they were trying to fuck me up. And I mean, I had a lot of that. So there was a lot of like this whole, a victim of something. I mean, they kicked me out. I needed one, mm. cre- one unit to graduate high school and they kicked me out of adult ed. So yeah, I felt like, oh, these people are out to get me. Yeah. They don't Injustice. like me. Injustice. Injustice. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, I'm a victim of this fucked up system. So yeah, I was very, now I just think, you know, Alyssa, you were a, you know, self-righteous, stubborn, smart ass who thought, you know, who, who basically just wasn't willing to play along with a couple little rules to get past that hump. So now I just see it as like a deficit as far as my my personality was concerned. Mm. Like if I had just sucked it up or been slightly nicer to those people, they wouldn't have kicked me out. You know, I made it harder. I made yeah. it way harder. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. I, I think I lost a lot of opportunities being an asshole. Yeah. And looking back, it's like, why was I even being an asshole? I don't know. Right. Just in the moment. Right. And teenagers suck. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> like, like we're, they're shitty. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know. Definitely. I don't know, yeah. Oh man, but Alyssa, it looks like we reached the hour mark. Oh, cool! We're awesome. here. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming. Oh yeah, it's thank great you for chatting having it up me. With you. Yeah. Thank you for your friend for tagging along, man. Thank yeah. You. Hopefully, I should got you two beers, huh? I'll take them. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. I'll you take know what? Just, just take the case. All right. Yeah. <laughs> no, I got, I got these beers. I was supposed to go out with friends, but I don't really drink beer. Mm. Not at home, at least. Yeah. yeah. But I like 
at the end of the day, the, the pants didn't go through, and I kept the case of beer. And I'm like, yeah. So they're just sitting there. So yeah. I was like, if you, if you dig them, you take them. Cool. Uh, and you're hitting up three mics. Are you hitting up uh, Pepper Tree, right? That's yeah, I think we're going to do Pepper Tree, Swing Door, Arturo's and, place. and Woodham's. Yeah, Woodham's. Woodham's. I, yeah. Might, I might see you so, on one of those. I okay. might go out. Yeah, cool. Yeah, we're just going to find a chill spot to chill in San Jose for a minute. You got any social media stuff you want to put out there, plug in? No. No, 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 no. no. Nope. They're going to have to see me live, baby. They're going to have to see me live. Well, ho- hopefully, <laughs> hopefully they catch you for Scotty one of these nights. Yes. Yeah, I'll come down soon. Thank you. Thank you. you. All right, there you have it. That was Alyssa Westerlin. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Once again, subscribe to the JMS Podcast. And you can email me at jmspodcast at gmo.com. Let me know how you felt about this episode. So uh, that's it for this week. Have a great Sunday. Have a good one. I will be... Uh, you know what? Think about my surgery tomorrow. It would be nice if while they're in there, they could you know take out some... you know Just give me a little tuck-in. You know? just, just take out some fat cells and slim me down. Maybe I could arrange that for the money that I'm paying for. Right? Might as well. You're already in there. Scripts on the shit out. All right, that's it. My name is Jorge M. Sanchez. This has been the JMS Podcast. Take care. Have a great week. Sayonara.